Hi there, Queens. I'm Dr. Leslie Branch. And I'm Lanier Logan, and this is Hear Me. Black women define the narratives that shape us. Hear Me weaves contemporary and historical weekly conversations to create stronger bonds and lasting legacies. Hear Me is a sacred space where we discuss and define narratives that shape and define who society says we are and find common ground on the things that unite us. She is me, I am her, and we are Hear Me. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? It's Wednesday. We're quarantined and I'm ready to go outside. Not necessarily go outside, but I'm ready to get outside. Like I'm tired of being told I have to stay home, but I understand it. Yeah. um, Same here. I've um, sort of started this thing called uh, Stay at Home, No Heat Hair Chronicles. And um, I, you know, post pictures to my various social media platforms to, um, you know, show people what's happening. Um, but it looks good. Well, I appreciate that. Um, thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have to get used to it. Um, no, I think we all have to get used to doing things for ourselves. Yeah. I haven't quite mastered the pedicure thing because just sitting in the tub on the edge with my feet in and soaking. It just doesn't feel as relaxing as sitting in someone's chair. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and them doing it for me. So, okay. So as I was preparing for your interview today, I like I was reading your bio and I was just like, like this is really impressive, right? So when I think about school tracks and even like as a kid, just having my own like issues and challenges with school and not knowing that like I had forms of learning disabilities, right? So school was just a challenge for me when it came to certain sections, certain subjects. So anything that I wanted to do that required lots of college or lots of school, I was like, nope, never mind, I'm not doing it. Hmm. <laughs> That was like my determining factor. So when I was reading over your bio and I was just like, you know, I was just curious to know, I guess we could start out here. Like this school track just seems like it's a plan. And I don't know if it was ever a plan for you, but um, did you know that this was the route that you wanted to go professionally? So um, that's a great question. And uh, I think part of the reason um, I'm so, you know, schooled is because that's the blueprint that was put on me um, from a young, young girl. Um, I was, you know, told that, uh, okay, so this is how um, you're going to do it. And so as I'm saying this, the song, This Is How We Do It, is playing in my head. Um, (laughs) But uh, I was told that, you know, I would get my education, um, I would graduate, I would go to college, I would graduate, I would marry, and then have children. Um, And so because that was the blueprint that was put upon me, um, you know, imbued on me from such a young age, that was the uh, path that I, that my life uh, took. And so I made sure um, to follow those um those steps and in that order and and so that's 
kind of how it happened for me. And did I want to initially uh, be an educator? Um, I'm not really sure that I want it to be. I believe initially I thought I might want to be a social worker. Um, but then uh, as I learned more of what social workers do, um, I figured that's not really the, um, the, the path for me because some of the things that they deal with are just so traumatic. And um, I, I, you know, wanted to be in a position to uplift people. And so I then thought um, I wanted to be an attorney because I was born in the 60s um, and grew up in the 70s and discrimination and racism were still very much a thing then. So I wanted to, you know, fight the power and uh, mm -hmm. be a civil rights attorney. But um, before taking the plunge um, to law school, went to paralegal school after graduating and uh, worked in law firms to see if really I wanted to be an attorney. And, uh, you know, when you're a young uh, junior attorney, you essentially uh, don't go home. And um, being young and married, I needed to go home. So I figured, you know, um, law school wasn't the thing for me. And then the, uh, the incident that really solidified uh, my choice to um, get a PhD in public and urban policy was a, um, was a pro bono or a racial discrimination case that uh, the firm that I worked for took on. And it was just amazing to me and infuriating that in the early 90s, um, nooses and swastikas and, and things like that were still uh, being put up in, in workplaces and whites only signs on water fountains and bathrooms. Uh, so I figured, you know, after we won, that's all well and good, but unless you can afford justice or unless, um, you know, somebody's going to represent you pro bono, um, justice wouldn't be broadly served. And so I figured policy was the, um, the better road to go. But I believe the thing that um, really solidified my decision to become an educator um, was, uh, you know, after we had our son, I wanted the, um, the opportunity to attend all of his little games and plays and things like that. And so being an educator in higher ed gives you flexibility in your scheduling. I wanted to be able to be home uh, with him during his formative years. And so that's how I uh, came to where I am. So certainly not a straight path by any means, but um, I think a trial and error sort of uh, an approach. Now, it's, it's so funny because, so this is totally our first podcast, and I realized as you were talking, I want to make sure that our audience is clear about, you know, who you are and what you're bringing to the table. So I'm just going to go over a few things. Uh, so you do have an associate, you're actually Dr. Leslie Branch. So I need to stop, like, <laughs> I need to not forget that doctor part, because that's, like, very important. So Dr. Leslie Branch is an associate professor at Metropolitan College of New York, and you are a, racially policy, a racial policy scholar, Fulbright specialist in race, ethnicity and religion and politics, senior research fellow at the Du Bois Brunch Center for Pu Public Policy at Megar Evers College, and a scholar with Scholar Strategy Network. That's a lot. So I probably like said that <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff. Um, now I feel like there's, I'm missing some things, right? 
Well, I mean, uh, that that's that you know that covers it in a nutshell. I mean, there are some other things that I have done, but uh, you know, um, to to most everyday people who aren't my students, I'm big less. Right. But so, where are you teaching now? So presently, I am teaching at Metropolitan College of New York, their uh, School for Business. I am the immediate past associate dean in the School for Business. I stepped down um, in December of 2019 at the end. Um, I am presently uh, chair-elect for ACBSP, which is an accrediting body for uh, schools for business that are teaching-oriented. Um, and I am a newly appointed uh, adjunct faculty in uh, St. John Fisher College uh, leadership doctoral um, program. So pretty excited about uh, oh that. Oh my gosh. But you, you also have um, a master's in urban policy, right? Or I, is it? Okay. Uh, yeah. So you brought up a few things, right? And just even saying that in with my original question. So you were raised in the Bronx, right? No, actually, I'm, uh, I was born on Long Island. So I, oh. uh, I was born on Long Island and um, <clears throat> was on Long Island for about 12 years and then uh, moved to Queens. Uh, and, and from Queens, uh, I joined the Navy. So I started college, actually. Um, but I graduated high school early and started college, but um, found that I wasn't really equipped um, uh, to to go to college. And so um, I needed something to fill the gap um, until I could figure out, you know, what my next moves would be. Um, so I joined the Navy. So what made you feel like you weren't equipped for college? Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I, joined, I graduated high school early. Um, and, and so I had just, I want to say, turned 18. And college is, you know, um, it's a big deal. Um, and so even though I would suggest that I was mature for my age, um, you know, it's a, it's a commitment. And if I, I didn't feel that I was able uh, or positioned well enough to be fully committed, um, and I, you know, wanted to do well. Um, and so because I did not feel that I was positioned to do well, I um, just took the step back and, and says, okay, you know what, um, college is still in the future because that's the uh, blueprint that they put on me. But at that particular moment, um, it, it wasn't the right time for me. Okay. I'm curious. So what was Queens like in the 70s? And I'm asking based on your perception as a black woman during that time, I'm just wondering what it was like. Um, well, it, I don't, hmm, I don't really know that my answer speaks for all of Queens, but I, I can speak certainly to, um, you know, my experiences. And, um, at that time, it was very collective. Um, I lived in a, uh, a black neighborhood um, and families looked out for one another. Um, you know, kids played outside um, in the street. I built go-karts. I had berry fights, rock fights. Um, 
and um, you know, it was just very, it was very community oriented. Um, they had block parties. It was, it was, it was pretty awesome, I thought. Um, and I guess back in the seventies, um, you know, racism was still, as I said before, and discrimination was still uh, very prevalent and prominent. Um, but I don't know that I was as subject to it, or I didn't perceive it um, as as um, as a thing. I don't know if it's because I I was a uh, a young black girl as opposed to you know something that happens to young black men. Um, but the thing that I remember very much is that it was very community uh, oriented, um, and and families looked out for one another. Um, I definitely miss that. So I know what you mean. Like growing up in the Bronx, we did have block parties. We, um, all of the parents knew each other. And if parents were outside kind of hanging out and playing cards, the rest of the kids were nearby hanging out and we were all playing, but our parents didn't actually have to be there. So if one parent was there, it was fine. We were straight for everybody else. I wonder if that's like different. So I know you mentioned that your parents kind of laid out the blueprint for you. Was there any moment where you said, this is kind of not what I want to do? So um, I would suggest no. And, and <laughs> so I have, I, I, I have, right. So in the, in the, in the seventies and, you know, you being a mother, um, you probably know this and, and have experienced it. Um, the way we were raised back then is, um, you know, you were told something and that was the, there was no dialogue or discourse. It was, this is how it's going to go. And, you know, it's not open for discussion, but I will say, um, that, you know, my, my upbringing is, is very interesting. And so, I kind of consider myself to be um, like a Moses, if you will, right? So in no way am I equating myself to the greatness um, that Moses was, but um, I equate myself to Moses in that um, he was born a pauper, uh, but was raised in a palace. Um, I obviously wasn't raised in a palace, um, but, you know, I was... uh, born in poverty. And by when I was an infant, I was um, uh, placed in foster care. And so for the first 12 years of my life, um, I spent it uh, between two, I believe two uh, foster families. And I was very blessed because the families with which I was placed were solidly middle-class uh, families who, um, you know, it was a two-parent household. Um, and they laid those blueprints on me, um, to the point that I could not deviate from them even after, um, I returned home, uh, to live with my natural, uh, mother. And so, um, it, it, there was no question in my mind, um, that this was what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was just so ingrained in me, um, from early on. 
so what so what was that like like having it sounds like you had possibly five sets maybe maybe three sets of um supportive parents so you um, have what everybody said <laughs> yeah pro- probably four right and so um <clears throat> there were uh i want to say the robinsons um and this was out very very far out east p- perhaps in uh the hamptons um and uh I, I, yeah it, well yeah and so um it was it was very um rural i would suggest i i believe there was a farm my earliest rem- my earliest memories were um you know there there was a farm and so that that was pretty cool um and then I moved more west, and uh, my next, uh, the next folks who um, had the uh, opportunity and the privilege to shape me into who I am today were um, a uh, a lovely family. They were the Jacksons, and um, the father was a deacon, and the mother was a stay-at-home wife, and it was a big white house um picket fence and the whole nine Uh, you know and so even though i was a foster child i was never made to feel or or made to feel that i was i was poor um i always was dressed well my hair was always coiffed i didn't have to do any of those things i um you know because that was the 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 mother's um, role and my role was to go to school and and um, have you know put myself on a, a path to have a, a better life and so uh, at 12 um, is when I transitioned from Long Island to Queens uh, with my uh, biological mother um, and at the time my sister um, who I call my Harriet Tubman married into uh, a family that I just fell so in love with because they represented for me everything that I knew from my earliest years. And so I took my sister's sister-in-law to be my mother. Um, and for all intents and purposes, when I refer to my mother, that is who I'm talking about. And um, she is or was um, the late um, Bishop Dr. Mamie L. Raji, um, but that family, you know, took me in. Uh, you know, it was a it was a a two for one deal. My sister married in, and they had to uh, take me. So, uh, <laughs> and, so and were you able to maintain relationships with all of them? It seems like they impacted you a great deal. So um, I wasn't able to maintain. Um, uh, connections with the Robinsons because I was there from an infant. And so, um, okay. I, I left, um, them when I was still very young. So I knew nothing about telephone numbers or anything like that. I did maintain contact with, uh, the Jacksons for a little bit. Um, but I seem to have lost touch with them. So I don't know if any of them are still around. Um, mm-hmm. and of course, um, my mom, uh, she left us um, two years ago um, in 2018, April. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's my, um, 
when I, when I talk about mom and dad, the, those are uh, the folks that I'm talking about. My my sister's actual uh, in-laws, and they have um, they have all embraced uh, me. And one of the things that I love so much about that family is their parents raised uh, them to always look out for one another. Um, and when you marry into a family, you're not just marrying in, you know, the person that you're marrying, you're marrying actually into that family. And so there was that um, sense of community and collectiveness that, um, that I remembered from my childhood that um, just resonates with me um, with this particular family, the, the Pattersons, the, the Harrises, uh, the Rajis and, and, you know, so yeah. Um, and they refer to me as cousin and, 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 you know, aunt and, and uncle, and they don't put a difference between me and them because I am not born of their blood. I was born in their heart. I think that's cool. And it seems like it's a part of your reoccurring theme in terms of the individuals that you want to impact to create community and to um, nurture relationships. And so that's pretty dope. Um, What was your experience like in the military? Uh, Two of the happiest days of my life when I went out. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, so you weren't particularly a fan of people yelling at you and, and doing all of this hard grunt work? Well, I mean, no, I didn't have a problem with it. And again, for me, it was it was a placeholder. Um, at one Which point, branch did, did you go to? The Marine? Navy. The, Navy. the Navy. Okay. So at one point, I did consider making it a career. Um, <clears throat> but um, once I got out, so again, part of the reason I went in is because I needed um, a placeholder. I needed to take up some, uh, to use up a chunk of time so I could figure things out. Um, I'm 18, you know, I'm kind of like uh, on my own, if you will. Um, <clears throat> and so I'm like, okay, I, I, I'm going to join the Navy, you know, I'll make a little money, I'll have a place to live, you know, and all of this other stuff, do some college while I'm in. Um, so I can, uh, buy myself some time to try to figure out how I'm going to execute this plan that, you know, has been so, uh, heavily imbued and ingrained in me. Um, and so, like I said, two of the happiest days of my life was when I went in and when I got out. Um, so when did you meet your husband? Uh, so the interesting thing is uh, my husband and my family have known each other um, since we were young, but I didn't necessarily know him um, because so when I'm, again, my family, uh, I'm a preacher's kid. My mom was a bishop. My dad is a pastor and, um, you know, we went to church in Harlem. And if you know anything about church in Harlem, there's, uh, in the, in the seventies, there was a, uh, there was a, um, a small storefront church on every corner. 
right? Mm -hmm. And because of the whole community and the fellowship thing, you know, my my mom's church would fellowship with where he went, uh, where he went would fellowship with us. And, you know, um, it, it was just a thing in the 70s, right? So um, how I got to meet my husband is uh, my mom's church was fellowshipping with his uh, church. And where he was going, um, the pastor was actually my mother's double first cousin. Um, so, and so, uh, you know, he was the organist for the church and, you know, my mom was an organist or, you know, she styled herself to be an organist, but she really, um, wasn't. So I, I was like, okay, I, I want to learn to play the organ, um, for my church. And, um, so, you know, I, uh, got my he wasn't my husband then, but I, you know, says I want to, I want to take music lessons with you because I want to be the organist for, um, my uh, mother's church at which, which is uh, Bethel Holy Church of Deliverance. Um, and so he, he agreed. And, uh, somewhere along the way, as you know, he's giving me lessons, I fell in love and I never learned to play. Um, but I got a husband out of the deal. Uh, so, and we've been married for 30 years this, uh, past April. Oh, wow. Congratulations. I don't even know if people do that anymore. Like our generation is like married three years, like 30 years is like three months on an Instagram relationship. <laughs> <laughs> like we have ADD for relationships. So yeah, there's a multiplier effect. But, you know, again, it goes back to um, that, that blueprint that was put on me um, in terms of what the direction my life would take. And so I'm grateful for it because um, I'm able to, I have been able to, you know, consult that blueprint to just see where I am. So, you know, you're a strategist um, and you're a very um, organized person and, and map mapping things out and uh so i think you can appreciate that uh that notion of being organized and consulting the plan to see if you're on track and and or if you're if you veered off a little bit or where things need to be adjusted to um to, right i actually yeah. saw it more as like setting the intention and i was wondering you know if that was something if if that was something that you've done with your own son kind of like laid the blueprint the blueprint and said, you know, here's the intentions and the expectations that I'm setting for you. Here's what you're going to do. But things have changed dramatically yeah. um, from the time that you've grown up, even the time frame, because there's a, you know, probably about a 15 year difference between your son and I. And things have even changed when I was his age. Yeah. So you know, I'm just wondering, what does that look like in terms of how you set your blueprint for him? So interestingly, um, you know, I did follow some of the, uh, the same uh, schematics uh, of the blueprint. Like, so you can't just go to anybody's house um, and anybody just can't come to our house, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, the whole sleepover thing and the play date was a, a big thing when he was coming up. And, 
and you know, I need to know who you trying to have a play date with, and I want to know their parents, and I, you know, and it's it's because at the end of the day, you know, I don't know what goes on in somebody else's house, and that's mm-hmm. how I was raised, you know, um, and so things may look okay on the outside, but I need to know what the real deal is, because um, I'm a one and done, right? Um, he's he's my I don't have a spare. He's he's my heir. Um, and so, um, you know, in, in those regards, yeah, um, the same blueprint, but in terms of, uh, some other things, I was a bit more lenient, right? So, um, he at one point wanted to wear his hair in, in cornrows and, um, I was like, okay, you know, but in my generation, if that were to happen, and, and guys did wear cornrows, obviously, but they were um, considered, uh, I guess, thuggish or, or something right. like the street, you know, and so I did not see it as that. I saw it as him wanting and to, you know, express himself as a, as a black man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were cool with it. Uh, I do remember... He had come home one day with, um, I can't remember if it was one ear pierced or both pierced. And he Mm -hmm. wasn't 18 at the time. And I was like, no, uh, you cannot do that. And the parlor that pierced your ears um, should have known better. But of course, all they want is the money. money. And so he took them out. And then on his 18th birthday, he had them pierced. And I didn't say a word because at that time, you know, he's 18 and he can do what he wants. Um, he has a small tattoo and, you know, coming up in the age that I did and the, you know, the blueprints, you know, you don't get a tattoo because it, you know, is whatever. So in some ways, um, during his younger years, yes, I did, um, exercise, uh, some of those, uh, strategies just because, I didn't want him to be a statistic. Uh, mm. I wanted him to graduate high school. Uh, he needed to graduate high school. Um, I don't know how true it is, but you know, I, I have read articles, and as a researcher, I don't know if it is what the veracity is uh, of it. But they say that there's a correlation between um, whether students pass the fourth grade ELA that correlates to how many prison beds um, are built, mm-hmm. right? And so, again, while I don't know if that is a true statement or if there is actually a correlation, um, it's certainly not causation, but, you know, it's not uh, a road that I wanted uh, for my son to um, to go down. So I wonder how accurate that is, too, because when I think of places like Chicago or even Baltimore, or Philadelphia, where Philadelphia, I think, is they have the largest, the highest poverty rate in the United States. Hmm. Uh, yep. And it impacts their education, public school education, dramatically. Uh, right. Even affecting the charter schools that are seen as successful there. Yeah. Uh, so I, it sounds like there is some relevance to that. Well, I mean, they very well could uh, be. And, uh, you know, part of what 
motivates me to um, join with you and do this podcast is whatever I have learned, um, whatever knowledge that I have, I want to be able to share it. And again, um, there are differences in the generations, but the foundation, um, the foundational stuff, I don't think that changes. Um, and that is so important to um, pour out of myself and into um, other vessels so they can carry forward um, this legacy. Um, they, they can carry this knowledge forward. And, and, you know, even articulating this, it reminds me even of what some other ethnicities do and how they perpetuate their own culture, right? They sit sit around and they they tell stories. I mean, they don't write it all in a book. They they rehearse these things in the ears of their young ones um, while they're young. So it just gets ingrained in them and uh, becomes a part of them. And then they can't help but to just move forward in that way because it has been uh, deposited in them um, since from from so young. And I think, you know, in some ways, some of those things might be missing in in um, black and brown communities, um, the foundation. I agree. I agree. And I also think we're not telling enough of our own stories, especially when it relates to families. We're not right. telling the right stories. We're not telling enough of our stories. And we're allowing our children to hear the stories of what um, of what has been told of us and created by outside people. So, yes. and that is a problem when you're sitting your kid in front of this documentary and you're leaving it for them to interpret that that is what the story is and it really isn't. And yeah. um, it's missing some key pieces. So that really um, brings me around to your book and it's something I want to talk about. And then we can just kind of really talk about after that, what, you know, why you wanted to do this podcast and how we like connected. Cause there is some reoccurring themes. And even when I think about how I met you and you being my former professor at Monroe college, you were probably the only professor that I had ever met that was a black woman and an older black woman at the time, of course, older than I, at the time, I think I was like, 25 or something like that but you were very down to earth and relatable oddly like there wasn't a a disconnect you weren't judgmental you were not trying to make us be something that we weren't um you spoke life into everybody whether we whether we saw it in ourselves or not like you made sure that we the way you saw us that we understood that that's how you saw us at least that's what I got from you. So it made it very easy to have conversations with you or to even come to the class and really hear you because it never felt like you were speaking at us. And I, I probably should just speak for myself, but I know like there are some people who could say the same thing, but it never felt like you were speaking at us. It always seemed like you were trying to understand us and you were sharing your perspectives. So I think it's interesting that... Um, the book that you wrote, Optimism at All Costs, Black Attitudes, Activism, and Advancement in Obama's America uh, with the University of Massachusetts Press. How did that book come to play? Is that like a lifetime piece of work 
like everything that you've done in your career that led up to it or you just decided to do it during the Obama administration? So um, I would suggest that it is everything that led up to the moment. Um, in, in the you know beginning of the book, I, I sort of open up with um, my history, um, not, not you know as open as I uh, was here, but the things that sort of led me to even uh, do a, um, a PhD in the first place. Um, and I would suggest that uh, it, while it is, you know, uh, a compilation of, of the things that, uh, that I had experienced, um, it was just so amazing because while I was, it initially, you know, so that piece initially was my dissertation. And um, after graduating, um, I shopped around, um, how do you call it, uh, book proposals to a few uh, publishers to see if they would be interested in um, uh, publishing it as a book. And um, I got uh, a bite from University of Massachusetts Press, uh, and I was very happy. So um, it, in some ways, it, it, it was inspired by, my, my dissertation was writing itself while I was um, writing it, right? It, it was just playing out before my eyes. And, and so I went back and I looked at some of the, um, some of the earlier documents that I had done uh, in coursework and then even um, my application to the New School's uh, um, public and urban policy PhD. And it kind of, it, it was just so interesting, um, not coincidental, but interesting because the values that are embedded in me or the, the, the things that were in, in deposited in me are still such a force in guiding uh, me even to this day, but particularly at that time, which was this notion for justice um, for, for black and brown people um, and how, you know, the, the, the doubts that I had were, were, you know, brought into question after Obama was elected. But, um, you know, after his second term, those, or during his second term, or even really during his first term, those doubts, um, you know, came flooding back. Um, and then how ironic is it to have a Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement under the leadership of a Black president? So, yeah, uh, it, it's everything, a lot that has happened over my lifetime um, has, uh, has gone into what was initially the dissertation and then ultimately the book. And as it relates to you know, um, standing before class as a, uh, a black woman uh, teaching, um, you know, I sat in that seat once, right? People would look at me and never believe that um, because they don't know my story, but I am you, right? I had some dysfunctional um, things happen. My biological family, didn't have it all together. I, you know, didn't have it all together, even though I was never 
during my formative years uh, led to believe I was anything less than a solidly middle uh, class um, kid. I lived in, you know, very good neighborhoods, went to very good schools. I didn't wear hand-me-downs. Um, I ate dinner every night. We had Bible study around the big uh, dining room table. Um, and yet the other side of me for at least six years um, lived in very chaotic, dysfunctional. I was like, what, who, what, you know, who are these people? I, I had no idea that, you know, people got um, falling down drunk and, and, you know, the police were at your, I'm like, what is this? Um, but I realized that that is the reality, not just of our people, but, you know, a large swath of uh, people in America. But mm -hmm. the folks that I want to talk to um, are the folks that look like me who experienced that. And, you know, my, my story is not one that, oh, I did it and you can too. No, um, I just want to lay a foundation. So, um, you know, when you embark on this journey, uh, there are some things, some signposts, some, some, some things that may not have uh, been deposited into you because of circumstances. I want to take what was given to me and give it back. Um, every gift that I have given is not for me to keep, but it's for me to give away. Um, and, and so that's how I try to approach, um, you know, my, my uh, teaching responsibilities, my mentoring, um, my interactions with um, humanity. So how different is because teaching at these colleges, you have a specific curriculum uh, that you have to follow and, you know, a whole guideline to get information out. So deciding to do a podcast, how different is that compared to just teaching in a classroom? So I will share with you that um, because I'd like to think that I'm... Um, uh, I, I try to, you know, cue in on what the the atmosphere is um, from day to day. And so if I'm detecting the atmosphere isn't calling for um, the lesson plan and the atmosphere is calling for um, let's have a real talk about real life, mm -hmm. I will find a way to uh, take the lesson and um, uh, infuse it with, you know, what's happening for real, for real in real life. And so this way um, you're getting the content, but you're getting it in a way that is relevant to where you are at that moment. So why the podcast? Um, what made you wanted to do the, the podcast and um, why now? So you ask a lot of why questions. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but uh, of course, the, the reason I want uh, to do this is because whatever I have to um, share, um, I want to share it more broadly. Um, and I realize a, a few things. So even when I'm standing before a class and, and lecturing, even though I have a captive audience, I know everybody isn't going to hear me, 
But if there's one person that hears me and, and gets the message and runs with it, then my job is done. Um, and so the podcast just allows uh, you and I to do that on a, a much broader scale, right? So, um, so how did that come about? Because, you know, I mean, I know, but I, it would be interesting for you to tell the audience, like, what your intention was when you thought about doing the podcast and then how we connected and then it turned into, turned from a you to an us thing for the podcast. Um, let's see. I think initially I wanted to, um, my, my initial thing was I wanted to do something with, uh, some sort of a podcast regarding Ted, TEDx. And, um, that kind of, I think fell by the wayside. Um, Mm -hmm. let's see. Uh, I just, I, I just remember feeling strongly that there is, there is, I, there's this group of, of people that I want to reach that I, you know, don't have access to, uh, probably because of age gaps and, 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 and other, um, uh, differences in, in dimensions. Uh, and then plus, you know, I'm just, I'm not the technical type. Um, I actually spoke to a few other people about, um, trying to give me some guidance on how to, do this. And, um, you know, they wanted a bunch of money that I just didn't have. And, uh, I'm like, okay, who else do I know? Who else do I know? And so initially when I reached out to you, I don't think that I envisioned it being a duo a dynamic duo of sorts. Um, but then it, it just occurred to me that, you know, um, it's better if we have, uh, messaging coming from, different ends of the spectrum because uh, not everybody is in the the same place that I am. And I can't reach a group of people that um, I can't effectively speak to. Um, So I think those are some of the things that, uh, that help solidify or or guide my thinking uh, on this. And um, then of course I, you know, pitched it to you and, and you were like, Voila! Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> no, it was definitely I like I I think I'm still blown away with the fact that you asked. And I also know that like the stars aligned and it just kind of worked. And even though I have like a lot of things going on right now, it just felt like this was really something that I wanted that I want to do. And I know like the podcast is focused on, Hear Me is focused on defying the narratives of Black women in society. And I want to start off our lightning round with some questions. So how this works, the lightning round, you say the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the question, Mm -hmm. right? And so we'll just get started. So describe your career in one word. Fulfilling. Okay. 
and one book that sparked change in your perception. Hmm. The Autobiography of Malcolm X. <gasps> yes, so my answer, not <laughs> That book, so can you tell me why, for what reason, and what age? Because I think that that's important. And maybe when's the last time you read it? Uh, so it would have been, I want to say my late 20s, early 30s. Um, I read it after uh, the movie came out. Mm -hmm. That had, uh, I think it was Denzel Washington that played yes. him. Um, and it just, it was so inspiring uh, for me to visualize and then read uh, something totally different than the narrative that is painted about uh, black men, particularly. Mm -hmm. um, and it it just, you know, welled up in me a sense of pride uh, about who we are, who we have always been, and who we, um, you know, should continue to be. Um, and And one thing that I like so much about uh, uh, Malcolm as, as a, as a person. Um, and, and, you know, I quoted some of his speeches in my dissertation and in my book as well is he, right. So as you know, he and Dr. King were contemporaries in terms of, you know, um, their, their fight in the civil rights era. Right. Um, but he essentially, what, what, I just love so much about him is that he, he, you know, said, okay, yeah, we have differences, but let's not focus on those because it doesn't matter what religion you are, um, how much money you make, you catch the same flack as um, the poor folk, right? right. So let's put, a, put aside the things that divide us and let's focus and, and come together, uh, collective action. Um, but I think the scene from the movie uh, that uh, that really just did it for me is when they were in the streets uh, mm -hmm. in Harlem and it, they were in formation. And so I, I guess, you know, being when he a came out of the hospital. Yeah. And he did and, the finger and was telling everybody to go. Let's go to the, the police station. Yeah. And, and so being a former military person, one of the things I loved doing was uh, marching and then just the precision of it. That just was like, mm. and, and the, then the cop was like, that's too much power for, you know. A black man to have. Yeah. yeah. That, I think that that scene for me, even just in the book, I think the book does a really good describe a really good job at describing that moment. But that scene was the epitome for me of our potential. Like once we know who we are and once we're clear on like our purpose and what we're supposed to be doing, like the amount of power that we have, the amount of impact that we can actually make in a positive way and the amount of change yeah. that can come from that is... Um, it's scary, but I think when you're in that moment and you're in that space, it's, um, I don't know, it's just a great, I, I look forward to being in that space. I think maybe I'm definitely. in that space or on my way, I don't know. But okay. We're definitely in it. <laughs> so 
Next question. One thing you wished you could have done differently. If anything. I don't know. There's there's nothing that's uh, coming to mind. Um, anything that I wish I could have done differently. I'm going to say there's nothing and, and not because um, there aren't things that I, I want and don't have, but I just, I, I believe that I try to live very intentionally, um, not always in the moment, but very intentionally. And given my, um, given who I am, um, I believe that my steps and every step that I take is ordered. And so uh, the things that I have gone through were necessary to bring me to the present moment um, that I am. And uh, okay. I, yeah, yeah. That works. So what's your biggest fear? Uh, biggest fear. Mm -hmm. um, well, as I get older, those fears are diminishing because I understand uh, the older I get, the, the less I truly know um, and the less I really have control over things. Um, that doesn't mean that I live in a way that is haphazard or unintentional. Um, but it, what it means is I try to consult um, the man upstairs for what his plans are, right? And and particularly given this whole pandemic that we're in, um, you know, I've definitely had more time to uh, do devotional and and more, you know, scriptural reading and 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 things like that. And um, it's true what Solomon says. You know, all of this is vanity. All mm -hmm. of this that we're striving for and all like that. Um, while it does matter in the long run, um, in some ways it, it doesn't. Um, and so, you know, I don't wanna be all philosophical, um, but I, I try to, you know, not have any fears. Um, and one of the things that I'm really learning to do is to let go. Um, as a mother, and, and you will That's soon- That's a big one, letting go. You will very uh, soon learn this. Uh, right now, you you know you have the reins, but at some point, you know you're going to have to loose the reins and let and let them go. Uh, I feel like that it, needs to happen now, and she's ten. Yeah, because she's. I've poured enough in her that I'm realizing that she's starting to shape who she wants to become. Yeah, and holding her so tight. Uh, makes her feel like, I think the impact would be making her feel as though who she feels instinctively to be is not good enough because uh, it's not aligning with what I want her to be. So yeah. I, I've been kind of conscious and aware of that lately. And so I'm trying to find the balance in that, but I totally get it. Like letting go and also yeah, yeah. just like letting go 
of your expectations of a specific outcome. So definitely. And, um, you know, one of the, the hardest things, and, um, I guess if there is a fear that I have had, um, it's of doing nothing right. As it relates to my son, but, um, the thing that I have learned the most, and it was one of the hardest things I had to learn was to do nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to see, um, your, your child, um, go through, um, whether or not whatever it is they're going through is, um, of their own making, uh, as a mother, you, I guess, just want to, you know, rescue your child. Right. And, and I had to learn that I can't always do that. And so I'm going to fix it. Yeah. And I really had a fear of not fixing it because if I didn't fix it, you know, what damage ultimately, um, is going to be done. And so I had just gotten to a point that, you know what, um, you just can't keep doing this. Uh, and it, was it scary? Yeah, it was, but, um, I am getting to the point where, you know, um, I just realized that I can't, you know, and, and what will be, will be because ultimately I do not have control over things. I do not say when, uh, uh, and, and, and how anymore. Those, those, uh, powers are not, are not mine. And so the song that is the theme song for my son and I is Regina Bell's If I Could. Mm. Right? Um, and there's a part in there where, um, you know, she talks about if she could all, you know, do these things. Um, and then there's the part of life that she gave to her, her child that wasn't hers. Um, but yeah, that's, so my fear is, uh, I'm, I'm, of not doing things, but I'm, I'm learning to let go. Okay. And so what inspires you? What inspires me? Um, hmm. well, my son, you know, I definitely want to, uh, try to make the world a better place, uh, for him. Um, not so sure I'm doing such a good job. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I realize that's out of the scope of my, uh, my superpowers. Um, what else inspires me? Um, my husband, I really, you know, it used to, um, upset me that, uh, he had the time to do all the things that he loved to do. Um, and then I thought about, uh, the portion of scripture where it was Martha, Mary, and Jesus. And uh, Martha was busy, 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 and Mary was tended to Jesus. And Martha got mad and told Jesus, you know, make Mary help me. Don't you see I'm in here with these collard greens and chitlins? No, she didn't say that. Uh, and, and Mary's just here chilling with you. Make her help me. And, and so... Jesus was like, you know, what Mary's doing is good. Um, and you just need to essentially stop complaining and leave her alone. And so that spoke to me. Um, and, you know, it checked me. So I was like, well, you know, maybe I need to do what he does. He finds the time to do the things that he enjoys doing. Um, 
and you need to do that too. So um, he has definitely uh, been someone that has inspired me to um, enjoy life, you know, engage in the things that uh, you enjoy engaging in and, and stop always. Um, he, he has inspired me to be in the moment, right? I'm typically never in the moment. I, I will achieve something and then, okay, I'm on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but stay a little while and, you know, relish and enjoy the achievement. You know, it's okay to uh, sort of enjoy and celebrate. You don't have to always uh, be five steps ahead. But I think in some ways I'm hardwired that way because of my experiences. Right. Um, I think so. and it's just a natural trait of women because we're such caretakers and nurturers that it's like, all right, I don't have time to spend in this space. I got to move on to the next thing. Right. Like something else is waiting. So that's really sweet. So tell me one narrative you feel led to change relating to black women. Um, one narrative that led to change relating to black women. Um, I kind of like the, uh, the Shirley Chisholm narrative. Right. So there's this line that uh, she says that if they don't offer you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Um, and a lot of tables that I have been at uh, and, and they haven't been too many, but um, I just I don't know. I don't feel like uh, I belong in some ways. And so there. There's something, I guess if you asked me something about change, I think. Right. um, So name the narrative you feel led to change relating to black. So if you were going to use that, then not feeling like you belong when you get to those tables, you know, what about that would you like to change? Um, I may not even want to be at that table Uh, just because um, I don't know that there is a genuine, um, a genuineness in me being even invited to the table, right? Why am I at this table? Am I just a token? Or do you really think that I have something to bring to the table? Or I can um, just maybe create my own table. Exactly. Because, you know, I don't want to be invited to a table. And then every time I try to, you know, reach for the biscuits, you slap in my hand. Right. Or every time I'm trying to give you something, you're, you know, shutting me down. Right. So um, there's that. And and what is interesting and maybe paradoxical about that, or maybe not, um, is when I think back to the civil rights eras, you know, what they were fighting for was integration. They wanted to be able to sit at the lunch counters and drink from the same you know, water fountains and, and, and all of that stuff. Um, but they weren't wanted there. And, but they, you know, kept persisting uh, nonetheless. And I don't know necessarily if it was, um, you know, them wanting to be integrated because they had some love of, um, you know, being with uh, white folk. They just simply wanted to be accepted as equal um Mm -hmm. and and so i guess there's a a tugging 
there, if you will. Um, so I don't know what 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 is the fight. Um, Seems like it's continued today too. Like everyone, um, especially when you're on Twitter, you see so many different opinions. There are black people who feel like, um, no, we need include like they want to be validated. They're okay with, you know, they see things as like all lives do matter, and it's like no, you're black. That doesn't even make sense for that to come out of your mouth. Right. Um, we're not by us saying that all black lives matter. It doesn't mean that other lives doesn't matter. It means that we're highlighting that we matter too, and right. our voices should be heard and we should be respected and treated as such. And so the whole narrative of like creating the table and sitting at someone else's table, I think I understand during the civil rights, it just felt like it probably was the next best step. Yeah. Because from where they were sitting, it just looked so much better. But the reality is we spent so much energy trying to be inclusive and be included that it took away from us really focusing and building up everything for our own. Like we started yeah. trying to adapt to them and include them. And it's just kind of like, we took all of that energy and infrastructure away from us. And, so. and <clears throat> you know, and, and what is interesting, um, I think in some ways, uh, assimilation was forced uh, because even today, as you said, um, right, so obviously if you're gonna live in a country, you should learn its language. Mm -hmm. But um, the extent to which, uh, one is expected to uh, assimilate or, or to adapt um, is, is a bit disturbing, right? So one of the things that I absolutely love, um, and, and it could be part of a revolution, is the, um, you know, the push to, the, the freedom to go natural, right? Mm -hmm. or, uh, just in terms of black hair. Right. Um, and, 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 to, and then the seventies, you know, the Afro was symbolic right. uh, of something. Um, and the natural hair movement now is more, it's symbolic to that too. Like when you see the natural hair and it curly and it just out and it's just free, mm -hmm. it seems like it's very symbolic to that. I just don't necessarily see as much pride in who we are in the same instance. So it feels like for some with the natural hair, it's just more of a style and a trend and it's convenient and it's great. And there mm -hmm. are more products out that support that. And there's more information on how to maintain it. I don't necessarily, when I think about the seventies or, you know, even the Black Panther movement with the Afros, mm -hmm. I identify that with a movement in Black pride, like all right. things Black. Like, you see this Afro, that means I love me and I love you because you look like me and, you know, this is happening to you, so it's happening to me. I don't necessarily see the, the same thing here now with the curly, like, I see that we're embracing ourselves, but I don't necessarily see the other aspects of us. It still just seems more vanity focused Yeah. than it is like an internal instinctive pride of now nah, your hair is beautiful. Like we're, we're connected in this. We're not. 
in in some cases we're really not like it's not the hair that connects us that's a unique identifier it's sometimes the circles or the conversations but not necessarily the hair like maybe it would appear to be from the 70s well i mean i guess the hope is that um you know everything that's happening uh particularly uh during this pandemic uh and and who um the folk that are being the most negatively and disparately impacted will cause us to, you know, shift uh, the focus and and um, gather and be more collective and intentional. Well, I have, I mean, I have faith that we're getting there. I think slowly but surely, we're definitely getting there. We're moving, we're moving in an interesting direction. For I do sure. think that social media has helped to bring things full circle for us in ways that we may not have been able to see before because you don't see it highlighted on national news outlets as much as you see these things that keep reoccurring and so it becomes it's just harder to ignore and it's just more so you're realizing like okay this struggle that i'm having here in new york city is similar to what they're having in california or here's what what's happening in alabama and these are the things that's happening in atlanta so that's interesting um last question is what's next for you uh so what is next (sighs) um i'm trying to write book number two um i'm trying or you are well, I wrote one chapter. <laughs> uh, writing is very solitary, and so um, it's hard. Uh, but um, you know, I'm I'm going to do it. Um, what else is the the podcast? Obviously, is uh, is what's next for me. Um, working on a book chapter for an edited volume. Um, that deals with HBCUs and uh, why they are still relevant and necessary. Mm. Um, You know, one of the things that I had hoped uh, once I finished my PhD was that I'd be able to, um, you know, be on a a few uh, political shows, you know, being a a talking head. And I've, I've been able to, to do that um, with a local uh, show in the Bronx called Bronx uh, Talk. Um, Haven't gotten the calls from the CNNs or anything like that. And so uh, when when I, you know, spoke with you about uh, co-venturing on the podcast, uh, you have uh, reminded me that uh, we don't necessarily have to be beholden to um, traditional media. Um, social media gives us a platform uh, to uh, discuss the issues that we want to, right. um, to reach the people that we um, uh, are trying to reach. And so uh, I appreciate you because while I, you know, operate from a, a blueprint or a um, a methodology that has been uh, you are you you are helping me to free uh, my thinking um, in terms of well you don't that's not the only route to go 
um, there are all of these other routes and, you know, we can explore those and get our message out. So for adding some value to this relationship. <laughs> so I want to say thank you so much for answering all of my questions. I'm really excited. Hopefully people, our audience will have an opportunity to get to know a little bit more about you. And hopefully this interview has done that. Um, this is actually going to be our first episode to our podcast, Hear Me, uh, where we kind of go behind the scenes and have these candid conversations with each other so that people can see what's to come. Because this season of all the things that we're talking about on our podcast kind of falls into like who we are and how our experience has shaped us. And so I'm really excited for this. Thank you for like chatting with me today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. On that note, it's a Rizzy. Thank you for joining us. You can catch our latest episodes every Tuesday. Hear Me is on Spotify and iTunes. And it's executive produced by me, Leslie Branch, and Lanier Logan. And big thanks to Lil Sourstruck who produced the beat. Till next time, hear me.